all the other bureaus were trying to hide their land from the from Parks and Rec because they were afraid that they would use their land to Parks and Recreation. So the Water Bureau had places on the water towers that they didn't want to talk about. We're going to see if we can have it the TV. Okay. Satan's coming back on. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. Uh, so part of it is to make sure that whatever bureau is responsible for the project lets all the other bureaus know that we're not going to take your land. We just want to know if someday someone could do agriculture on it. There we go. It's going to get brighter and brighter in a moment or two. So looks like we're going to, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. All right. We'll edit all this out later. Okay, so all these potential uses, these are the 274 parcels that they identified as places you could do urban agriculture. But then they looked at what was being done currently in terms of school gardens, community gardens, CSAs, things like that, identified a whole bunch of other more or less private projects. And here's a little site snapshot of just one of the sites that was going to work for them. This was a power substation with a bunch of grass around it. You could grow plants there. So they had set snapshots of each one of the sites that they identified. And then they looked at impediments. This is a map of the city of Portland, and the red is where agriculture is prohibited. So this identifies immediately, we need to change the law. We need to change the rules in the city so that we can do agriculture. And that actually turned out to be the biggest leverage point, was simply changing the zoning so that, and here's their you know, the policy recommendations that they made about adopt a formal policy, uh, conduct a comprehensive review of policy and zoning obstacles. So just this assessment alone created huge opportunity for urban agriculture. Another example from Portland, and I just want to look at this permaculture principle of making the least effort for the greatest effect. How do we find the leverage point? This is a project done by um, Mark Lakeman and City Repair. And Mark had come back from villages in Mexico and wanted his neighborhood to feel more like a village than just a, a city intersection. He lived on a corner and he had this great idea of a change in transforming their intersection to where you had, this was the design that he proposed was to build, first they wanted to build a traffic circle. I told this story a few times before. But they wanted to build a traffic circle but the city said, build a traffic circle, cost you $10,000, you have to pay for it, or else if there's a fatality at that intersection, we will then build one. Uh, but, so they looked for volunteers. No one really was <laughs> However, when they made this proposal, so they, they went to the city with a full-blown proposal, and they got together and talked about, well, if they will give us a traffic circle, let's paint one. And as they were brainstorming, when painting the traffic circle, someone said, well, on my corner, because all the poor neighbors living on the corners were part of this discussion, on my corner, I'm going to put up a free box and a little, you know, cast off library book or, or a library for, for used books that we can give away. Someone else wanted to put up an information kiosk. Someone offered to put up a, a thermos of hot water with a bunch of old mugs every morning so people could have tea. And someone else agreed to put up a little children's playhouse on their corner. So they built a model of this. They took it into the city of Portland to the Department of Transportation because that's who owns the streets. And the DOT just, you know, <laughs> you can't do that. You know, it's public property. You can't use it. That sort of thing. But one of the people in the DOT who was not that kind of permit official actually followed them out when they kind of dejectedly were walking out of the room, followed them up, got in the elevator with them, and said, look, I can give you a permit for a block party. 
I can't give you a permit for all that, but I can give you a permit for a block party. And if something happens over the weekend, well, the blocks are closed off. So that was what they did. They, they had a block party, and they painted the intersection, and they did all this stuff. They built, up, built a little children's play station that they used as the serving center for their restaurant that they put in the intersection to have all the feed all the neighbors while they were working. They did a really important thing during this weekend. They realized that if they built all this cool stuff on this intersection, that it was going to get vandalized. You know, that's just what happens. So what they did was they recruited the potential vandals, all the <laughs> nine to 14-year-old boys in the neighborhood. They brought them all in and got them involved in the project. Total pattern literacy here. They knew exactly what to do. So these kids were invested and they protected the project rather than vandalized it. Uh, here's the library and giveaway box that was built. And here's the tea station with a couple of neighbors in the neighbor's house with a thermos bottle chain to it. And here's the children's playhouse when it's actually done and in use as a children's playhouse. And here's an overhead shot of what the intersection looked like. They repainted every year as part of a village celebration. So it was just simply the idea of getting a traffic circle but then morphed into this huge creative building the village in the city. And they've done a survey showing that most residents really love this feel that it's much safer, a much better neighborhood to live in. And so because this was so successful, there is now in the city of Portland the intersection repair ordinance, where if you just follow a few simple guidelines, you can do this in your neighborhood. And so it's been replicated uh, at 35 other intersections now in, in Portland and also in Seattle and also in LA and in a number of other cities that are getting their own chapters. Uh, of the city repair organization, cityrepair.org are the folks who do this, and they actually have a book called The Placemaking Handbook that will help you do this sort of project in your town, show you what the obstacles are, show you how to get it through the permitting system. So there are now lots and lots of these repaired intersections um, all over Portland and a lot of other cities. So a couple more examples, a few, a handful more examples of permaculture in practice. Another permaculture principle is start small and then get, get successful on a small scale and then replicate your successes with variations. We call that grow by chunking. Make a successful chunk and then replicate in other places. So an example of this uh, is a food desert. Places where there is no food available within a quarter mile is the official ruling or we also consider if it's only fast food within a quarter mile, we think of that as a food desert. There are lots of those in many cities, and a group of people in Oakland uh, wanted to eliminate one of their food deserts. They decided to build a market, except they realized they don't have the money to build a market. They didn't have the experience to run a market. They knew they would fail, so they started small. They bought a truck, painted it red, called the Mobile Market, and they filled it up with local, where they bought produce and took it around to community centers and other places where people gathered in mostly low-income neighborhoods and sold food at very reasonable prices out of the truck. Then they built a second mobile market and they created alliances with a bunch of neighbors growing food. So they had 14 different gardens that they were involved in where they would get fresh produce from their neighbors' gardens to sell on the mobile market. And they have just now been able to raise enough money. People's Grocery uh, in, in Oakland is, I, I haven't heard whether they've actually broken ground on their, their grocery yet or whether it's, it's built at this point. Uh, but 
they, they've now, after several years, gotten to the point where they feel like they have the capital and they have the experience to actually be able to grow, to, to start a grocery. But the mobile market was how they got in with very low overhead and where the cost of failure would not be something that would really kill them. So speaking of cost, one of the things that we all talk about in, in particularly in the Bay Area is how expensive it is to live here. And permaculture offers a good set of tools for reducing the need to earn, for reducing our dependence on money. And I've really been inspired by some folks in the East Coast, and Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landua, who came up with a system that they call the eight forms of capital. We're all familiar with financial capital. You save up a bunch of money, and it makes interest, and you generate money off of that as a form of support. And many of us are familiar with social capital, where you have a bunch of friends, and they support you as well. They generate help, and take care of you, and you take care of them. But Ethan and Gregory talk about other forms, material capital, just the built environment and all the stuff we have around us as a form of support, living capital, the green world, all the plants and animals around us as a form of support, cultural capital, all the things embedded deeply in our culture that, that support us as well, experiential capital, the things that we've learned over the course of our lives. I am very grateful for experiential capital at my age. It's one of the nice things about getting older is stuff that used to just knock me for a loop hardly phases me anymore, just because I've seen most of it before. Intellectual capital, the things that we know and the foundation that can build for us. And spiritual capital is what, what we form within us that helps us as well. So between these eight forms of capital, they're all helping one another, supporting one another, and they greatly reduce our need to depend only on financial capital. And a nice example of this is or just an, an example of this is the way that so much in our culture has been monetized. When you look at the way child care and elder care have both been monetized, it used to be that when you got about the age where you were going to have kids or you had small kids, your parents were getting on, so your parents would move in or move near you, they'd take care of the kids, the kids would keep your parents active, you would help take care of your parents, no money involved. And nowadays, you put your parents in a senior home, you pay a ton of money for that, and you pay daycare for your kids. So we can unmonetize these systems with social capital and cultural capital and all these other forms of capital. Greatly reduce how much money it takes to stay alive, particularly in this area. Another important piece of a livelihood piece, and I have a whole chapter in the book on livelihood and how we can gain more secure livelihoods, is to develop a strong claim to your livelihood. If you are a middle tier in a large operation, your job is not very secure. One of the things that I think we're going to see as, as energy scent and descent continues, as we kind of come down the far side of Hubbard's curve, as fuel becomes more and more scarce over the years, we built up these enormously complex systems that are dependent on cheap resources. Uh, we have things like the financial system, which is insanely complicated, the healthcare system, unbelievably complicated, the education system, really complex. You know, it used to be 50 years ago, a high school diploma was all you needed to get a decent job. Now graduate school doesn't even guarantee you that you're going to get decent employment. So these systems have become unbelievably complex as more and more resources have become available. And this is what all societies do is they, all, all civilizations become more and more complex as they develop larger and larger resource bases. Then when those resource bases start to decline, 
the society simplifies. The complicated parts just disappear because there aren't the resources to support it anymore. And that's what's gonna happen here. If you're in the middle tiers of some organization, you're probably not very secure. So finding ways to, to have a better claim on your livelihood, you don't have much of a claim in that position. People at the top do, and some of the critical line personnel at the bottom may if their jobs don't get exported. So ways that we can have a more secure livelihood, a better claim to our livelihood, probably explains a giant increase in entrepreneurship these days. Something that op that's not open to everyone, but a lot of people are founding their own businesses. A lot of people in this room are, are in work for themselves or with very small groups of people. If you can't do that, then perhaps you've got friends who you trust, who you can work for or work with. Another option is to have multiple income streams, is to have a whole series of, of what are called nickel generators, just a group of different income streams. That way, if one of them falls apart, you haven't lost everything. If one of them hits, you can put more resources into that. And another really important piece is to become valuable, to develop skills that are, are valued by the people around you. And my friend Larry Santoyo says, you know, I'd kind of like to be rich, but I'd much more like to be valuable. And that's real, that is real job security, if you, if you are of value to your community. And to develop, using things like the eight forms of capital, to develop non-monetary support systems and demonetize our lives. So examples of places that are doing some of this, this really cool work around livelihood and some of these others, uh, is the Grow House in Denver, is, is I think a wonderful example of, it was an abandoned set of cut flower greenhouses that were taken over by a developer who also opened up a nonprofit here, uh, put in a series of aquaponic beds in these greenhouses. It's in a low-income food desert, a highly toxic former industrial area, and it's become the job hub. It's become, there, there's a farmer's market there that is a pay-what-you-can market. We very often give away food to the neighbors. They employ a, a number of the neighbors. They have education and job training classes for the neighbors. It's very much being embraced by the local community um, in this, this very impoverished food desert industrial neighborhood in, in Denver. So they're doing fantastic work. Um, in San Diego, there was a mall that was going to be built very conventionally, a shopping mall, Market Creek Plaza. The local people got together and said, we want something better than this. We want to be able to invest in this mall ourselves. They raised a half a million dollars among about 400 investors that are all in the neighborhood, sold shares at $10 a share, so that the neighbors now are invested in this shopping center and actually derive profits from the stock. So where are they going to shop? The local community is going to shop here because they get a benefit from it. Um, local organizations here um, in the city and in the East Bay, Pathways to Resilience, um, my friend Pandora Thomas, is working with formerly incarcerated people using permaculture trainings to give them employable skills and to kind of get them back into life. And another organization, Planning Justice, doing something similar uh, in the East Bay. Terrific organizations working with underserved communities and, and applying permaculture design. Right near here in Sebastopol is the City Hall and Library have a permaculture design going on. Um, that's, being, that's been installed with, by folks at Daily Acts, folks at the Permaculture Skills Center, permaculture artisans, and a whole group of other folks um, with a whole set of gardens at City Hall and the library in multiple forms. Another thing I'm really inspired by is just this huge push towards public food forests. 
Uh, the first big one was in Seattle, but they're appearing all over the place. Food forests on city-owned land where anyone can come and harvest fruit. And of course, the first fear is, what happens if someone steals all the fruit? And it's great, because that just means we need more food for us, right? So, and people don't do that. It's just, that's not the problem. The problem is that most of the fruit rots on the ground. Or just putting food forests on your city street. Again, this is in Portland, Mark Lakeman's office. Uh, on, on 12th Avenue, a busy street. He's got a food forest right around his office building. Another project that's slowly working its way through the city and town, in, in, in the city, here, uh, was, came out of one of my permaculture design classes. There was an architect, Richard Parker, who took the course, who lives near the Francisco Reservoir, which is a, an abandoned reservoir in a pretty nice part of the city. It's been abandoned for decades, and everyone's been arguing over what to do with it. So this design project came out of the course of making a proposal of a permaculture design to the neighborhood. They actually got an audience with the city supervisor and then with the mayor. And the uh, bureau that owns this parcel has deeded it over for a dollar to the, to, to the parks department now once this project has gotten underway. It had been argued over for years, but it's starting to move forward to create a park for the neighborhood coming out of the permaculture design project. So here's the master plan of what's going to be going on in the, in the Francisco Reservoir. Um, in, here in the city of Petaluma, um, because my, the, um, the vice mayor of Petaluma at the time, Tiffany Renee, was in my course, she helped put together a design project for redoing the stormwater management uh, process, the whole stormwater management project here in Petaluma. And although there's lots of bureaucracy and things like that involved, um, pieces of the design are again slowly working their way through the city. Tiffany's here tonight and probably tell us more about that. All right. And uh, another project that's really one of the most exciting to me is in permaculture being applied to education. Hood River Middle School, I mentioned earlier Michael Becker, who came in, he's the one who's uh, who was doing laundry in the uh, you know, in laundromats that his mother didn't like, but he's also a middle school teacher who decided to apply permaculture to the entire school curriculum in his class. So he would teach all of his subjects using permaculture design. His kids founded a farmer's market, so they started their own business in town, um, in, in, in the school. They were so inspired by this that, I mean, I could just go on with incredible stories of what they did. They designed, the kids themselves designed this greenhouse and music and science building and raised the funds for it, um, did a lot of the work attaching the solar panels. Um, it just on and on, these kids um, then built an aquaponic system themselves, again, raised the money for that. They wanted to be able to take the food that they were growing in the garden and serve it in the cafeteria, but they weren't allowed to do that because they didn't have a food handler's license. So they raised the money to build a commercial kitchen in the school and got their food handler's licenses. So the kids now can serve food in the cafeteria that they grew in the garden there. Permaculture is also being used in, in disaster relief for first responders. If you think about what we do as permaculture designers, we show up on a site, we assess what do we do about food, what do we do about water, what do we do about energy, what do we do about safety, what do we do about community, what do we do about livelihood. Those are all the important elements in disaster relief as well. So permaculturists are showing up, this is in Haiti, but are showing up all over the place. Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, many, many places all over the world. Um, where, where disaster relief is needed. And <clears throat> speaking of 
the future of the city and disaster relief uh, both together is looking at, as we're coming down the far side of Hubbard's curve, you know, we're, we're about here, we're about peak everything these days. So I want to just move from how permaculture can be applied in disasters to how permaculture can be applied in novel situations that we're probably coming up with. I think that I talked about the collapse of these really complex systems as energy is not there to, to keep them going anymore, to keep them at that complex level. And what we've been seeing for many, many years, for the last couple centuries, is the rise of the nation state. And I think that's uh, that the fossil fuel revolution has had a lot to do with that. The nations did not really become global. The idea of the nation was not a global idea really until the 19th century. Italy and Germany are both 19th century inventions. Many of the nations around the world are, from, are very recent. The recent inventions, and I think it takes a lot of energy to create a nation and to create a global economy. I think that, that a far more stable form of political unit that will be seen a return to and it was in existence for many, many millennia before the nation state was the city state. Was, was a city ringed by the farmland that provides for it and small villages that then were protected by that city. So I think, I think that this is going to be the pattern of the future and is another reason that cities are so important because I think that the city region idea, which I prefer to the city state, the cities as being a really influential center in their, their surrounding region is something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of as the nation state gradually becomes more untenable, harder to run these big empires. It's interesting though that, that, civiliz that societies that have cities tend to go through a rise and fall and collapse and a dark age. Societies that don't have cities tend to be much more stable. They generally don't go through that boom and bust that a lot of, of societies that don't have cities in them, horticultural societies and hunter-gatherer societies. So if I were going to design a permaculture future, it probably wouldn't even really involve cities. Here I am talking about cities, all this, and I think, I think that, I mean, I'm on record as saying that a society based on agriculture can't be sustainable in the long term. We've had about 10,000 years of agriculture. Agriculture is really important for cities to exist. And I don't think agriculture is really sustainable in the long run. We pretty well trashed every ecosystem on the planet with agriculture. I think we've got to do something else. And I would call that horticulture or permaculture. So my vision of the future is not even really so many cities, but much more of a set of villages and their regions. But I think this, this is a much more sustainable long-term, hundreds of thousands of years as opposed to a few millennia type of future. So it's a little bit ironic to end up a talk on cities with the disappearance of cities and a return to more of the village economy. Uh, but I think this is this is my vision of cities for now, we'll work with where we are. And that, and that's really what where I, I do want to end is in permaculture we start where we are and we do have cities right now. So what I'm trying to do is to help develop in this book and in this talk a toolkit as well as showing a bunch of examples of people who are applying that toolkit to making our cities more livable, more sustainable, more regenerative, and in particular, trying to bring our cities into more harmonious balance with the people who live in them and also with the rest of the world outside those cities. So thanks very much. I hope you had a good time tonight.
Thank you, Katie. So we have about another half hour. Um, if you can't say, you know, quietly slip out, but if um, we're gonna take some time for a question and answer. So if you wanna just raise your hand, I'll come and find you with the mic. Um, get underway here. Any questions? Damien. <laughs> Damien, all right. I wasn't going to ask this question, but then you brought up villages again, so I have to. Okay. I'm curious how much you know about the super dense village society that existed around here in Sonoma and Marin counties before um, Europeans came in. My understanding is the density was, um, it was the most densely populated place outside of Mexico City, except it wasn't centralized, which is totally revolutionary. I'm curious how much you know about that and whether there's any lessons to be learned from that. I, I don't know a lot about it, although I've been fascinated by it. It's on my list of things to learn more about, but there, there definitely can be highly dense areas that don't involve cities. Um, Hawaii was, was at least as dense um, up until very, very, let's see. The Hawaii settled by the Polynesians at the peak of that Polynesian culture was just about as dense as Hawaii is today, not quite but almost as dense. And there are many examples of places that were village-based that were actually quite dense, just lots and lots of villages. So I'd, I'd like to learn more and folks know more about the cultural patterns of this region. California had a lot of people in it uh, before contact, for sure. Um, probably the most densely settled, highly populated area um, outright, as you say, outside of Mexico. Of course, this was Mexico. <laughs> yes? He's going to bring a mic to you. There you go. Can you talk about how you would apply those village concepts to a failed city like Detroit? Yeah, that's that's a so the idea of, of how do we apply this stuff to places like Detroit or uh, play, see, Detroit has been in the process of fragmenting. I think for well, I mean, I I lived in Detroit. Uh, I'm going to date myself here in the 1960s. Lived outside of Detroit, and it was in its heyday. And wa I watched it collapse, the beginning of the collapse, and watching it shatter, really watching it fragment into uh, neighborhoods, some very gang controlled, some just simply isolated economically, some isolated because they had bulldozed areas around it and there were no houses. So it, it was, it, it's in its own way, has fragmented almost into a set of villages um, that are, there's still central control, there's still economic control over it. but. Um, I, I like the idea of like, like some of the things that City Repair is doing in creating these neighborhood centers, creating intersections or places where people can gather. So what, what you need is a series of small focal points in a place like that. So much more distributed, but areas that, that people can gather, um, many of them, I think, and you need to think about what it is a village needs. You know, a village needs a cafe, it needs a marketplace, it needs a gathering place, so create those little spaces in a bunch of different places around cities like Detroit. That's right, I don't think, I don't think Detroit's ever gonna look like the Motor City again. It's gonna do something different, and it's, gonna, it's doing things that are really interesting. So I'm fascinated with what's going on in Detroit uh, and a number of other Rust Belt cities. Pittsburgh's got some really interesting things going on with it. Um, they've got a mayor who's very supportive of attracting artists and, and innovative people to the city. Uh, so there, there are a lot of good tools, but creating many distributed small centers rather than a big downtown I think is a really important part of it. And Detroit is already a long ways there. 
I'm just going to keep my eye on the show and visit to the other one. Uh, just a quick question. Um, it sort of seems like the unmentioned uh, part of all this, uh, there's so many wonderful examples of where things are really working, and the one missing piece that I'm noticing glaringly being here is water. Right. Yes. I have another entire talk called The Joy of Drought, um, which, which is all about water. So I haven't spoken much about water in this. And that's, and that's a big issue. Um, cities have tended in the past to grow where water was abundant, or they grow because they brought water. Well, LA is the classic example of bringing water in. Uh, but yeah, this, this area, you know, that, that, that I think is going to be one of the big factors in how large a city can be, is, is whether you can get enough water to it. And we're just at the beginning seeing water limitations of how that's going to affect places like Las Vegas um, and probably LA and a lot of other cities. So yeah, it's a huge, huge issue and, and it's one of those uh, leverage points that is sitting there uh, kind of ready to crank. So you're right, not talking about it in this one, but uh, it's a huge, huge issue. Well, that, my question was actually similar, which is how much did you anticipate the impacts climate change and its reconfiguring of how things might unfold, especially in real and exploded areas where you could not be habitable, habitable in some places where you know uh, heating or or electricity changes and you know that, that kind of stuff. That's something I wonder about. Yeah and I and I wonder it too. You know I think I think part of it is a lot of, of what I talk about in terms of full systems design is lots of small flexible pieces that are loosely connected to one another. The idea of these large monolithic structures are not responsive to things like climate change. Um, it's quite possible that, yeah, that we'll have cities that are more or less uninhabitable, or whole regions that are more or less uninhabitable. Places where we're growing food now will be impossible or very difficult, or you'll have to change your type of food that's being grown. So I think that you know, the watchword for me is flexibility and mobility. And um, what I'm, I guess my mission is to try and create good places to be that have these qualities of flexibility uh, and to be in one myself, because those are the places I want to be, and to create more so that there will be more of them and, and less of the really scary, crazy places. So uh, the large monolithic structures are not the way to go. The bottom-up distributed, much more flexible response is, is really what we need. Uh, and from a food point of view, we should be growing all sorts of different things that are marginal in our area to, to be ready to jump if the climate cools off, heats up, dries up, gets too wet. You know, that we've got something in place to, to act as the, ba the basis of the food supply. So diversity in a huge way. Hi, uh, we have Oasis Farm just outside of town, and what I'm realizing is in the last few years, um, a lot of people say that they want to be involved with local food, or they want to be involved with little farms, but they're really stuck in going to Trader Joe's mm -hmm. and Whole Foods. And I just wondered if you had any hints for how to unstick Right, yeah. Uh, boy, that's, <laughs> let me think about that a minute. Um, 
I mean, we, we have to make these things, we've got to give people incentive, okay? We, what, what would make people want to stop going to Trader Joe's? You know, to, so so how, do we make, how do we make the alternative more fun? Can we bring food to them somehow? Um, can we, so how do, how do we make it easier, I guess is really, or, or more interesting? One of the, the there was a, there have been a couple of CSAs that have been bicycle-based CSAs where they actually ride a bike to neighborhoods, and people got excited by that idea, idea of just a bicycle-based CSA, that's really cool. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of what, what little pieces would make this more attractive, would catch people's attention, would be kind of a diversion, you know, so anything to, to get people out of the fault of getting in your car and driving to TJ's or, or whatever it is. So something to make it sexy, something to make it fun, some sort of incentive. Uh, local currency that was um, available at the at the CSA somehow, or no, I'm just I'm just ideating here, but of lots of little ways to. Because uh, you're right, right? How do we how do we make people break our habits? How do we get folks to go in the walking zone one or the bicycle zone two as opposed to the car zone four? Absolutely, no, it's a really good question, and I'll continue to uh, think about that. <laughs> Thanks, though. We need, we need fun, sexy things to uh, get people to break their habits. The idea of one livelihood being comprised of several different kinds of work as opposed to having one employer um, means you know, when, when, when you have an employer in our current system, you usually have a lot of health paying for health insurance. You're lucky, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, as a self employed person, it's more expensive. So, I'm wondering, um, you know, in healthcare, our health and what we've become used to in terms of being able to figure out what's going on with our bodies and take care of our bodies. Certainly, medicine is one of the things that become much more complex. And um, beyond, beyond healthcare, it's sort of an overarching question. Is there anything that we're going to need to give up? For example, being able to have access to such incredible healthcare and diagnostic tools. If we, if we reduce down into simpler, simpler society. Well, I think, I think the healthcare system is already in the process of collapse. <laughs> it's, it's increasingly unaffordable, and it's, it's one of the most complicated systems that we have. So I think you know, this is one of these things that I think is just going to continue to unwind. And I think finding, I mean, basic healthcare is really pretty simple. You know, good, good nutrition, good trauma care for when you really break something bad. Uh, and you know, some sort of some sort of practitioner who can help you with chronic problems, and then there's the you know the whole testing and diagnosis thing that's really expensive, and the heroic surgeries that are really expensive. Those are the pieces that that are, are the less tenable parts of our healthcare system. And I absolutely agree with you that as as a self-employed person, healthcare is one of my giant you know health insurance is an enormous expense, even with the, with the long care, it's still huge. So that is something that I think we give up either or it becomes much more difficult as, a, as an entrepreneur or um, 
There, another a piece that I would like to see is small self-insuring cooperatives. If we're not going to get it from the federal government, the idea that we can band together in small groups and self-insure, and everybody pays a premium to a common core, it sounds a lot like socialism and collectivism. But uh, you know, there are, there are a number of other answers rather than either having to pay for it all yourself or waiting for the government. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot in between that scale. So again, multiple solutions for that kind of issue. So I'm originally from Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and if you are really interested in what people are, are looking at and doing, you as well, so we, the, um, the Patch Adams Clinic, that they're trying to get together in Philadelphia, and they had an initiative in Philadelphia for a while and actually looked at some of that we were talking about, and there were state, like, law problems around doing a, a health insurance cost. So again, we're looking at invisible structures, like that map of all the red of the agricultural zones. Um, That's, that is one of the main issues, is, is just informing people that it's okay. You know, who gets to take this food? Do we designate that? You know, are there designated pickers or are there gleaning operations? I mean, there, there, are, there are obviously a whole number of ways to solve it, whether it's raising public awareness or designating people. You know, there may be a group of people who would love to have a stand at the farmer's market who harvest this. Um, go around and, yeah. Correct. Your designated food cleaners or something like that would be one possibility. So is it okay just to go ahead and get your group <laughs> on if it's there and it's ripe and it's like right. for picking? I guess it depends on where it is. But in public food forest, it would be okay. okay. Uh, that's, that's the way we're trying to set it up. Thank you. I guess I, I just wanted to follow up on that. Uh, this is something I was thinking of as a water supply engineer. Is um, we need to figure out some way of growing animal foods and the streetscapes and the uh, business, business parts that we're putting in. There's an enormous amount of water going into landscapes that directly nobody, nobody cares about. Yeah, it's an enormous waste, and I, I don't really know what to do about that. Have you seen any communities that have gotten some traction? I mean, you mentioned food forests, but anything else with municipal streetscape programs or 
Um, again, the, the city, both the city of Portland and the city of Seattle have been working with um, at least more, more on the lines of wildlife planting, uh, as, but at least functional landscapes that are, that are habitat as opposed to grass. And I know there's some eastern cities, but I'm less familiar with them. Uh, but Portland and Seattle are the cities that I'm most familiar with in, in doing the streetscape, you know, municipal habitat landscaping. Not so much food, um, just to their concern about car exhaust on a parking strip and things like that, but a lot of habitat plants and rain gardens and things like that. So I just spent three weeks in, um, in China and Hong Kong as an environmental leadership program. And um, we went to this island, a really beautiful tropical island called Cheng Chow in Hong Kong. It had a uh, permaculture farm on it. And um, one of the things that I was immediately hit by was the fact that we were walking through this jungle and they said, we're in the farm right now. We looked around and it looked exactly the same. I thought that was really um, amazing, and I wanted to see how we could do that here in the United States and um, in our natural environments and our city environments. So, yeah, a, a well-designed um, edible landscape like that, or, or a multifunctional landscape, actually is, is it takes a pretty trained ecologist to be able to tell the difference. Because I, I had the same experience. Uh, in Central America and going into someone's, they call it a farm, and it looked like jungle to me until I realized, wait, that's a mango, and that's a tamarind, and that's a coffee bush. And, you know, so we can do the same sort of thing in, in temperate climate. Actually, a huge amount of North America was a food forest before European contact. You know, between the oak trees, walnut, if you think of the, the trees in the East Coast, oaks, chestnuts, walnuts, beech nuts, hickories, uh, were the primary overstory plants, and crab apples uh, and cherries were the understory plants. Were in, in large part, it was a gigantic food forest in the major river valleys. So that's something that we could we could replicate here: is forests that fit, that have the ecological functions of a wild forest, but also provide perennial perennial food for people. So that's that's something I'm really excited about: is is returning North America to the food forest that it was 500 years ago. to do things like local currency, but that's, again, it's like not shopping at Trader Joe's. Um, the, yeah, the, the local investment using a permaculture model is being done by, I know a couple of folks in Hawaii, and a guy named Michael Kramer, and actually there's a, um, a fellow in uh, Windsor, Christopher Peck, who's been involved with 
holistic management and, the, and um, natural investing. So they're looking at, at they're, they're looking at socially responsible investing, but they definitely lean towards local. It's not something that I study a lot myself, um, is, is local investment, but it's definitely something that a number of, uh, of, of folks like that are working on. So I can't give you a much more comprehensive answer than that other than uh, it's a really good idea. Christopher Peck is a great resource for that and is actually a former board member of the Data Ads organization. Just to add on that, Public Banking Institute is another organization that's really looking at uh, creating public banks that local communities can invest in and then use that for local infrastructure projects that create local jobs. It's, um, it's in process um, to try to get one in California. So check out Public Banking. Any last questions? Mr. Schaffer? I don't know exactly how to express this, but I was surprised and stimulated by the conclusion after talking about cities, by the book, and then back to the village, which I have a lot of hope for the downtown neighborhoods. And you know, as things collapse, which they might, because energy problems, climate problems, many of the things that you're talking about. But um, I just wish you could say a little more about that. What, what, what drew you to that conclusion? Uh, because that, that's very memorable. You had all this evidence-based information and clear thinking, and that led you to that idea. Well, for anybody with a strong anthropology background named Jason Gadeski a number of years ago, said, you know, permaculture is just a horticulture system. And at first I got angry, and it's more than gardening, it's not just horticulture. But he was really talking about horticultural societies, societies that are grounded more in gardens than in farms. And there have been many, many of them. Uh, the longest lived was the Jomon people of Japan, who were a horticultural society that lasted about 14,000 years finally extinguished by an agricultural society. Uh, the Oakwell people who lived from roughly Ohio to New Jersey were there for 4,000 years as a horticultural people. So there have been long-term, very stable cultures who were gardeners rather than farmers. And this got me very excited, the idea that, that really what permaculture is talking about is moving away from field crop type farming to biologically diverse garden-based systems that behave like natural ecosystems. Because a farm doesn't behave like an ecosystem, you know, but a garden can behave like an ecosystem. So that, that got me started on this, but it means much more, much smaller um, human, ha human settlements. Because uh, you, if you've got large human populations, you need large fields to, fill, to feed them easily. It's really hard to feed a million people out of small gardens. It can be done, New York City did it for a while, but a much more distributed horticultural society looks to me like a long-term sustainable solution. Agriculture looks like you got about 10,000 years on a planet before it gets a dead end. And horticulture, I'm hoping for maybe 100,000 years. And by then, we'll know what we're doing. Any last questions? Uh, 
I, I think of a long-term global population, and again, you know, anybody's guess, but a, a half a billion to two billion, something, something in that range. What well, that would be the future population? Yeah, that, that, that strikes me as a medium-term sustainable population. Again, until we kind of figure things out. Where is that? Is gone. Yeah. Well, we just stop reproducing. So that's a whole other, whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need to kill people. We just need to stop having babies. Tell them that. Now. Let's give one more round of applause for Tony.